Good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Glad to be with you. You all are in a, um, a, a wonderful, we're on, aren't we? Can you hear? Okay, are we good? Can you hear back there okay? Great. We're uh, in, in a, a tremendous chapter, uh, Romans chapter 8. Uh, I often uh, say that if I am Tom Hanks and I'm the castaway and I have uh, had to parachute into a desert island in the Pacific and I get to take one chapter in the Bible, you get to take one chapter, what, what chapter is that going to be? Uh, oh, you're going to take 12, Romans 12? Some folks are going to definitely take Psalm 23, uh, but for me, I'm going to take Romans chapter 8, because one of the things that you see there that uh, all of those who by faith in Jesus have God for their father, and we're on belay, we're on belay. Christians in Jakarta, Indonesia this morning are on belay with the love of God the Father, and there's nothing that can cut you off if you're in Christ from the love of the Father. There's no adverse circumstance, not your past sin, not anything that you're presently struggling with, uh, not even uh, death itself, nor an attack by, by demons and the devil can cut you off from the love of God the Father. Well, this morning uh, I want us to uh, look at, really this is sort of the, one of the sweetest privileges of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is uh, that of adoption. And we're going to look at Romans 8, 12 to 17. And, um, and I don't know if, uh, if I could see Sandy doing this, but they might kick me out after starting this amen lesson with Peter Townsend and the who. Uh, tell me, tell me, who are you? Who are you? Who, 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 who? Tell me, who are you, are you? Uh, okay. Um, well, this morning we want to look at, uh, and I want to speak in just a minute about why it's important to know who you are. And who are you? What does the Bible say about who you are as a man? And secondly, what difference should this make in your life practically? Well, uh, in studying the book of Romans, uh, one of the things I wanted just to do is sort of uh, kind of hit the big picture and then move into this particular passage. You know, what's the purpose uh, of a book like this? You know, where we get uh, just sort of a crystallation of uh, the beautiful gospel of grace that religious people, irreligious people are saved in the same way through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're justified. We're declared right with God, acceptable to God. We're absolutely, completely forgiven. We're robed in the perfect robe of Jesus' righteousness. And it comes as a gift, not as something that we earn. And one of the things that Martin Luther always says, and I love to share this with people, if we forget this every day of our lives, no matter how long we've been walking with the Lord, and we have to beat it incessantly into our heads and into our hearts, and Martin Luther says in his commentary on Galatians, if we don't do that, we will be buffeted by fears and depression. Well, the purpose of this epistle to the Romans is, is this, that God would be glorified, 
that God would be magnified and exalted in a unified missional church. A unified missional church humbled under grace. One of the beautiful things of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is it does two things for you at, at the same time. And they sound very uh, contradictory. One, one of the things that absolutely, utterly, completely humbles you. Look at what it cost the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue you. It cost him the shedding of his own blood on Calvary's cross. Look at how much the Father must love you that he would allow his son to endure that to save and rescue you. This is grace. And it humbles us on the one hand. On the other hand, it emboldens us. I'm a, I'm a blood-bought son of the living God. And it, it, it empowers us to serve. So it humbles us. It emboldens us. Uh, the outline of Romans. I, I love this particular outline. One of the things I do is I help young men uh, get prepared for their ordination exam. Some of you uh, help in this room help, help me with this. And uh, at times we have, to do, we have to lay out, okay, give me, uh, give me an outline of the book of Romans. Give me an outline of the book of Genesis. And uh, if you need a simple outline, if you're ever having to teach through uh, the book of Romans, one of the best ones is chapters 1 to 3 is sin, uh, 4 and 5 salvation, uh, 6 to 8 is sanctification. So you got sin, salvation, sanctification. 9 to 11 is sovereignty, God's sovereignty. And then 12 to 16 is service. What I've got here for you this morning is another little outline where we come under God's grace, chapters 1 to 4. So coming under God's grace. And then the challenge for all of us, no matter how long we've been uh, walking this Christian life is living in God's grace, Romans chapter 5 through 8. And then the overflow of grace. It starts with the Jews and then it overflows to the nations, uh, to the Gentiles who, who are us, 9 to 11. And then in, in chapters 12 to 16, you have a church that is being shaped by grace. Grace informs how, how we treat people. Uh, it, it informs all of our relationships to the government. Uh, to, uh, to our brothers and sisters, people who think very differently about us th than us in, on certain matters. Well, one of the things I want to do today is just read Ro uh, Romans 8, 12 to 17, and then I want us just to look at these two questions. Who are you, and what difference should this make in your life? So Romans 8, 12 to 17. Hear the word of God. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, or the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let me pray for us. Father, in this brief time together, would you be pleased to speak to us your eternal word? And Lord, may the meditations of, of all of our hearts, and may my words be acceptable in your sight. For Lord, you're the only rock and our only redeemer to whom we can continually come. Speak, O Lord, your servants listen. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I have a son. <clears throat> name is Austin. He's a 19-year-old kid. He's uh, still in college. He's on a break. And right now, he is in Hollywood, California. And he's a musician and uh, sort of an aspiring uh, actor. And I was speaking with him uh, a couple of days ago, and I asked him how it was going. And he said, he said, Dad, he said, I don't think I would ever choose to live here. Um, there, there are a lot of empty people here that are on this restless quest to be somebody. And they're always talking about who they've met and, and what they've done, where they, where they went on their vacation. And one of the things I've... Uh, I was really kind of glad to hear him say that because it is certainly easy as a 19-year-old to be attracted to the glitz and the glitter and the fame and the power and the prestige of being an actor or being a, a musician. Uh, well, one of the things is all of us, not just the people of Hollywood, but all of us, part of living in a broken and fallen world is we're on an anxious, restless quest to be somebody. In fact, uh, this, this hit me not too long ago when a friend of mine uh, was asked to leave his church. He's a pastor. And his young son uh, told him, Daddy, could you ever be a pastor again? I liked it a lot better when you were a pastor because you were a somebody. Now you're a nobody. You know, I mean, you know, those are those daggers. I don't know, having four kids, these uh, daggers that your children can kind of stick into you at times. And, uh, and I think what I would say to my son, if he said that to me, son, you got it all wrong from the beginning. I've always been a nobody. <laughs> uh, but I have been representing somebody, and that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only somebody. Um, so you see, when your professional identity is stripped away, it can leave you very vulnerable and exposed, and it can lead you uh, to despair. Uh, this, this, this came uh, at me. I was speaking to a friend of mine named Jim Houston who uh, helped to start Regent College and Seminary up in Vancouver, and he was telling me about a, um, a book called Life in the Balance, <clears throat> and it's written by a doctor, Dr. Thomas uh, Grayboys, who was a senior cardiologist at Harvard Medical School. And basically, it is a story of, of a man who falls into utter despair because his professional identity, identity is stripped away in the, in the prime of his career due to the early onset of Parkinson's. Friends, it is very, very important that we know who we truly are, and we get and center our identity in Jesus Christ. Here on the staff of Second Presbyterian Church, we have four values. 
that we're to live by. And we work to make sure that these four values are lived out in all of our relationships. The first one is we know and embrace who we are. And I would just tell you that that, that ought to be a value that you oh, today. Some of you may already know this, but this is what I want for you. I want you to know and embrace who you are in Christ. You are a blood-bought son of the living God. You're in his family, and there's nothing you can do to get kicked out. Well, let's, let's look at that in, in Romans 8, uh, 12 uh, to 14. Who are you? So when Peter Townsend comes up to you and starts questioning who you are, you can tell him. <laughs> According to Romans 8, 14, and let's start with that. You are a son of God whom the Spirit of God leads. And he leads you for a very specific purpose, to foster the family likeness. The Spirit of God is committed to shaping the character of Jesus Christ in the hearts of his sons. So first of all, let's look at point A, at a new identity. We all have a new identity. In verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So one of the things we need to step back at this point is just to, to realize that much of Romans and much of our discussion here uh, up till now has been focused on justification. Justification is sort of a forensic uh, idea that's uh, conceived in the terms of the court of law. We're, we're guilty criminals. We're rebels without a cause, and we've been acquitted. We've been released from the debt of sin we owe. We've, uh, we've been accepted, and no longer do we have to fear God as our judge. Adoption is a family idea, and it, it, it conceives God as our father. And he is, and it's not based on law, it's based on his love. I've got for you here in your notes a definition of adoption. And this is from question 34 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And oftentimes when you come to certain words, it's hard to, Bible words that are, what, okay, what do you mean by justification? What do you mean by adoption? And uh, this is a simple definition. It says, adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number of, of the sons of God and have a right to all the privileges of being a son. And this is what Romans 8, 12 to 17 is all about. It's, it's setting forth uh, what it means to be a son and then all the privileges and rights that you have as a son of the living God. But it would be, uh, it would be, I would come up short if I didn't talk, just, and just blip this right here and now. You see the freeness and we'll talk about this in a, in a moment. The freeness of being a son, it's, it's a gift that you receive. In fact, the word received is used twice in Romans 8.15. Uh, but I, basically what I want you to see is that this, this gift that you've received, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're adopted into God's family. You have a secure place to belong. But it is a costly grace. Remember the parable of the prodigal son. Remember the elder brother who was griping and complaining, you've never thrown me a party? 
Well, one of the things that that parable is designed to do is to point us to Jesus Christ, who is the true elder brother, who at the incredible infinite cost to himself, his own body, his own life, he lays down his life to rescue prodigals like us who've been playing fast and free in the far country. And he gladly lays down his life, the only begotten son, to rescue and save those of us who are the adopted sons. So we have a new identity. I don't know about you, but um, when people ask you, you know, hey, what do you do? You know, we conceive of our identity. That's why I started in the introduction like I did. We generally talk about our identity in terms of, of what we do. You know, we're a cardiologist. You know, we're uh, a bonds trader. We're, we're a school teacher. And we don't uh, talk about who we are in terms of who we really, really are at the core of our being. So this, this passage is designed to reorient us in terms of how we identify ourselves. We have a new identity. We're the sons of the living God. And this is why we sing, Behold the amazing gift of love the Father has bestowed on us who are the sinful sons of men to call us sons of God. We've just come out of, out of Christmas. And C.S. Lewis, uh, would, he would crystallize the whole meaning of Christmas in this one phrase. Jesus Christ the only begotten Son of God became a man to enable the sons of men to become the sons of God. And that is what you are. Today, if you're like me, I'm being redeemed, I'm being restored. God is at work in my life as a follower of Jesus, but I'm broken and fallen. The lie of the viper is deeply embedded in my heart. Dick, don't you remember what you did back here? Who do you think you are? A son of the living God? And, and the accuser of the brethren comes to kind of crack his whip and, uh, and uh, try to bring up guilt and shame about things in the past. And this is when you come back to the Word of God. You, the, the, the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. There's power in the Word of God. And what I do, I immediately go to 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon me that I should be called the Son, a Son of God. And it's like the Apostle John knew we were all going to doubt it. And he says, and that is what we are. And so you have to arm yourself for the spiritual fight when the devil comes to accuse you. Or when the law, when God's word screams at you and you see all the holes in your life, you, 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 you claim the promises of God like 1 John 3, 1. We have a new identity. We have a new leader. Uh, the first part of, 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 ch of chapter 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, when you, when you see that at face value, it's so easy to go into the whole idea of personal guidance. And, and it is true, and uh, especially if you have uh, uh, any sons and daughters who are in the midst of making decisions where they're going to college, who they're going to marry, all that, you, you, you like the idea that the Lord gives His Spirit fully. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit, and He guides us. He leads us. Um, 
And I pray every day, Psalm 32, verse 8, for my children, for myself. Lord, lead and guide and counsel me, counsel them in the way that they should go. We have the Spirit of God, and he does lead and guide us. I love Psalm 73, verse 24. Lord, you'll guide me with your counsel, and afterwards receive me into glory. The Spirit of God does lead and guide us. However, the idea here in verse 14 is not the idea of personal guidance in decision-making. The idea here is that the leadership of the Holy Spirit in this particular occasion is for us express purpose. And this is the mandate. This is, if you will, the new mandate that we have. And, and the Spirit of God has been given to us. If, we have, if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God has indwelt us. And we have received all of the Holy Spirit. He does not come in installments. And the Holy Spirit that indwells us is the spirit of sonship. And so what ends up happening, he comes in and his, the mandate that we have now, that we've been given new life, our mortal bodies have been given new life, and the moment that we breathe our last, we're going to go to be with the Lord in heaven. We're going to have eternal spiritual life. And because of that, our new mandate, our new obligation is to be killing sin. This is the mandate, and you see this in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now, there is an old Puritan. His name is John Owen, and um, he's written a lot of books. And one of the ones that uh, many of our contemporary pastors have tried to sort of simplify so that we can read it in our modern era is called The Mortification of Sin. And uh, that title of the book comes from this particular chapter, that the mandate for those of us who are in the Spirit is that we're to be about the process of killing sin. Now, we have to be very careful when we start talking about this um, because the one phrase that John Owen is famous for saying this is his call to Christian men in all generations. He says this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And I don't know if you ever, if you heard, uh, you know, I've, I remember uh, my favorite seminary professor, Howard Hendricks, uh, holding this book up and said, men, <laughs> this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And one of the things that's real important here, because it's so easy when you just hear what I've said so far, golly, you know, um, I'm battling with lust. Uh, you know, I've, <clears throat> I'm getting angry with my wife and my kids. Uh, I know my kids used to always, when daddy was fixing something, my dad is one of the most incredibly gifted mechanical guys on the planet. He can fix anything. We've never called a repair man in my house where I grew up in eastern North Carolina in over 50 years. He can fix it all. Those genes did not pass down to his son. Um, I can break anything. I guarantee it. And uh, my kids knew growing up, when daddy's fixing something, get out of the way. 
Um, he is not Dick Cowan. Um, uh, and, uh, and how easy it is when you kind of see, I've gotten angry, I'm struggling with this and that. And it's easy to start to think that I, I, I've got to do better. And one of the things that the Apostle Paul is not saying here is, hey, hey, come on, pull your bootstraps up and, and get busy trying to, to kill sin. You can do it. You can't do it. The whole thrust behind here is that the Spirit alone gives us the power uh, and, the, and He changes our desires. Some of you have experienced this. Some of you maybe have been recently converted. You've come to faith in Jesus and the things that you struggled with before, you've, you've lost your appetite for. The Spirit of God changes our desires and He disciplines us so that we might uh, share the character of Jesus Christ. But one of the things that's really important here is that we do have responsibilities. You know, God's Word, for example, the, uh, late last night I was preparing for our, our worship service on Sunday. And, uh, and we're reading a psalm, Psalm 34. And I, had to, I was writing a prayer of confession. You know, one of the things, I don't know why I have this responsibility at this church. I think I must have a lot of sin that I need to confess. Um, I, one of the things we do is we'll pray a simple prayer of confession of sin in order to kind of prime the pump of our hearts to help us to see, you know, today, today as, as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a work associate, there's some way where we're failing to believe the gospel and live out of our identity in Jesus. And we need, we need, to, we need to acknowledge that and run to the cross and know that we are forgiven and deeply, profoundly loved by our Father. And this is really what I want you to, if, when you get down to the essence of this time together this morning, how are you not living in line with your true identity as a son of God? And if you really begin to really delight in that identity, what one way would you live differently? What one way would you live differently? We have a, a, a new mandate to be, to be killing sin. Um, John Stott, in his commentary, this whole idea of killing sin, the, the fancy Bible word is mortification. And, and listen to what he says. Mortification is neither masochism, taking pleasure in self-inflicted pain, nor is it asceticism, uh, resenting and rejecting the fact that we have bodies and natural bodily appetites. Rather, it is a rejection of evil as evil that leads us to such a decisive and radical repudiation of it that no imagery can do it justice except putting to death the misdeeds of the body. One of the things, guys, that I just practically do, now I don't do this every day, and I can tell you I'm not this super spiritual. <laughs> uh, probably more days go by that I don't do this, but you've already spoken about Romans chapter 6, about presenting the instruments of your body, uh, the, uh, uh, the members of your body as instruments of righteousness. Sometimes what I'll do, just to be practical about this, when I'm in the shower, okay, I, I, Lord... These are your eyes today to look on those things that only please you. Lord, these are your ears today. I'm going to be tempted by the siren songs of the world, but I want to hear the melody of your gospel grace. Lord, these are your hands to do your bidding today. Lord, these are your feet to delight, to walk in the ways of your commandments today. You, you just... 
each, each member. You, you, you keep presenting those to the Lord and you say, Lord, help me. And when you're in knee deep and, and, and crocodiles are everywhere, can I give you a prayer to pray? I, you know, when you read all the prayers in the Bible, now there's a few. Daniel 9 is a long prayer. It's a mother load. It's a pastor's, a pastor's prayer. But most of the prayers in the Bible are very short prayers. Can I give you a prayer that I pray when I don't know what to pray? Father, save me, for I'm yours. Father, save me, for I am yours. Just a simple, simple prayer. We have a new motive uh, in this last part under who are you. Back in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Friends, one of the things I want to encourage you with is Martin Luther on his deathbed. He used, really, he used this verse. We are debtors. This is a simple prayer on an old man's deathbed. I am a debtor. I am a debtor to the Holy Spirit who has saved me, who has indwelt me, who has filled me, who has empowered me to live for Jesus all the days of my life. I am a debtor. This is true. Friends, do you realize what a debt we have to the Holy Spirit? That's... Our mortal bodies have been given life, that the Spirit of the living God lives in us. And would you pray today, oh, Holy Spirit, fall fresh on me. Give me life so that I can delight to do what you call me to do, what you command. And that one day when I come to my dying day, death will never cut me off from the love of my Father. And that when my heart stops beating and the brain waves cease, I'm going to wake up in glory and I'll gaze with the eyes of sight on true beauty. And as a son of the living God, when I see my father, I will be made like him. And everything that has ever hurt, every pain I've ever experienced, it will, it will go away. It'll be the healing, healing in every facet. And we will share the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. What difference does this make in our lives? What difference should it make in your life? And this is where we want to uh, look in the last part of our, of our passage, Romans 8, 14 to 17. If you are a son of the living God through faith in Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God is alive and work in you to lead you uh, into the family resemblance, God is calling us to embrace and enjoy all of the following privileges, and I just want to just sort of summarize these uh, fairly quickly. Uh, first of all, the first right and privilege of a son of the living God is you have a new intimacy. You have a new intimacy with God, your Father. Now let me, uh, and, and this is in verse, verse 15. Let me read it. For you, do not, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, one of the things you ought to just, the, the words that are repeated, when you, when you read the Bible, notice the words that are repeated. And here you have twice the word received. And so one of the things this ought to just tell you immediately is that, number one, 
not everybody who walks this planet is a son of God, a child of God. So how do we become the children of God? Again, the simple statement of Scripture, John 1, 12, but as many as received him, as received Jesus Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So we, only those who put their faith in Jesus Christ are true, authentic sons of the living God. And it's a gift that we receive. It's the, notice, first of all, the freeness of this grace of adoption. It's a gift that you receive. It's not anything that you earn. There's something in all of us that resists this, uh, that takes our salvation, our adoption out of our hands and puts it solely in God's hands, but it's utterly and completely freeing. And one of the things it ought to do, in just a minute we'll talk about an implication of this, it ought to give you today great assurance that you today can know the full assurance of your salvation. You know where you're going when you die. The freeness of this intimacy with God. Second of all, the power of this intimacy. The power of the intimacy with God and access, confident access to God is seen. And we didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into slavish dread of God as our judge. That now we have him as our father. And one of the things I love to do when, I, when I'm doing, uh, officiating at a wedding is I love to start with Zephaniah. It's obscure, I realize that. Zephaniah 3, verse 17. The Lord our God is with you. He is mighty to save. He takes great delight in you and rejoices over you with singing. Is that your view of God? Is that your view of how the heavenly Father looks at you, rejoicing, singing over you as his son? I did not grow up with that image of God. And I, I often say, I, I grew up with the image of God, that God is the cosmic killjoy in heaven. And he sees any, any of his children having fun. Fun spells the first three letters of the word funeral, and he wants to put his thumb down on us. I don't know where that idea came of sort of a restrictive uh, celestial scrooge, but for so many of us, that's the notion that we have of God. But now we no longer fear him as our judge because we have Jesus Christ as our, the friend of sinners. I love to say he's, the, he's my elder brother. He's my elder brother, and according to Hebrews 2.11, he is not ashamed to call me his brother. And my friends, this gives you incredible confidence, incredible freedom. The nature of this intimacy. So you got the freeness, the power, and the nature of this intimacy. This is the cry by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now I've got a few thoughts for you here. One from Dick Lucas uh, over in England. The cry of Abba is neither ecstatic praise nor cozy sentimentality, but rather it is a cry of agony in the heat of battle, the same as the cry that Jesus made in Gethsemane. Abba, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. It's a cry of trust in seemingly overwhelming circumstances. You guys know this if you have children. I can remember when my youngest sister, who's nine years younger than I, was playing on a gate over... Uh, 
at the lake where we grew up, this iron uh, gate, gate, and she was swinging underneath it, and it came loose from the hinge, the wooden hinges, came down and crushed her nose. And there's this faint little cry, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And my dad, and he, my dad is a larger-than-life figure in my family, went running, picked up this little girl all bloodied and and I can remember him taking her to the, be- to, to the bathroom to wash all the blood away, get her to the emergency room to fix her, her little nose as a small little child. This is the nature of this cry. It's, it's, it's um, like when I was in eighth grade, one of the things, if y'all remember, a leaf collection. Any of you guys had to do a leaf collection? I was out on my granddaddy's farm, and uh, I was out just minding my own business, just, you know, white oak, red oak, uh, you know, all the different uh, trees that are on my granddaddy's farm, when all of a sudden, a snake got after me. A black racer. Now, now they're not going to really hurt you, but for a kid, a long black snake, uh, it'll scare the willies out of you. And I can remember, this is the first time I ever said a cuss word in my daddy's presence. I said, Daddy, there's a snake. (laughs) This is the cry. Yes, we can today, when we come to pray, Abba, Father, thank you that we can call you such an intimate term as as a young boy does his daddy. Abba, an Aramaic. Abba, Daddy. But it's not this casual, flippant, uh, when I call my son and he says, yo, 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 daddy-o. This is not how we come to God. We come in reverence. We come in humility. But we come with confidence and boldness. He is our father. J.I. Packer in his, in his book, Knowing God, uh, his chapter on the sons of God, he says, if you want to judge how well a man understands Christianity... Find out how much he makes of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers, if this is not the thought that controls his whole outlook on life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. So the question is for us today, what do we make What do we make of having God for our Father? And if you're like me, I have to say, you know what? I don't make enough of it. I don't take time to really think of what it means to have God for my Father. We have a new identity. We have a new intimacy with God. Secondly now, we have a a new family. One of the things I want to talk about uh, just briefly here is uh, a lot of folks will say, you know what, this is one of the reasons I don't like the Bible. It's so archaic and all this gender specific. Can we get to a little bit more of a gender of a neutral Bible? Why do we have to use the word sons? And one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul changes here from children of God to the sons of God because in the Roman Empire, sons were the only ones who received the family inheritance. In just a minute, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that inheritance. 
This is how uh, Caesar Augustus, in the time of Jesus Christ, this is how he became uh, the emperor of the Roman Empire. This is how he received all of his wealth and power and an authority from Julius Caesar, uh, who adopted Caesar Augustus into his family so that uh, a man who didn't have any heirs who could continue his family legacy and pass on his inheritance to an adopted son. So Caesar Augustus became the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Well, one of the things I want to tell you as well is all of us want to belong. You see it in young teenagers and the things that people will try to do in order to belong, to find security, to find connection, to be loved and accepted. Everyone, if you visit a church here in our community, whether you acknowledge this consciously or not, you're asking two questions when you walk in the door. Will I be loved here? Will I be loved and accepted here? Second question, am I needed here? Can, can God use me here? These are two simple questions. And the first one here, we have a new family. And friends, one of the things, you have a new family to love. And the challenging thing is a lot of those folks are different than you. Some of them are hard to love. Uh, I, I love the title of a friend of mine's book. He says, Relationships, colon, a mess worth making. When you get involved in people's lives, you're going, to be, you're going to be involved in a mess. We're a mess. But one of the things, we've been given the power and the love to love those people with. Remember Romans 5, 5? The Holy Spirit has poured the love of the Father into your heart. You can't love anybody, but the Father, the Holy Spirit through you, can love them with the Father's love. We have a new family. And so one of the things I say here, our salvation is not simply a transition out of condemnation into acceptance, but out of bondage and destitution into the safety, certainty, and enjoyment of the family of God. You have a place to belong, the family of God. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. C, not only do we have a new intimacy with God, a new family, we have a new assurance. And friends, this really is, in many ways, one of the main reasons why the Apostle Paul is writing the book of Romans. Uh, these Christians are about to suffer fairly intensely. And it would be easy to say that uh, God is angry with us. God is abandoning us. This is a sign that maybe we're not the Lord's because of our suffering. And he wants to say, no, you have the assurance, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Sonship that's come into your heart and you cry out, Abba, Father, is that same Spirit that testifies with your Spirit that you indeed are sons of the living God. Verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, some of you may know the old hymn, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within our hearts. Okay. Now, there's something a little bit wrong with that hymn. How do you know that you've been born again? How do you know that Jesus Christ lives and you too will live? The Bible 
tells you so. The Bible tells you so. Now, what, this, this is the objective evidence. Here in verse 16 is the subjective evidence. Not only you ask me how I know he lives and lives in me, the Bible tells me so. But secondly, the Spirit convinces me so. And so this is a, a very, very important passage. Well, can I tell you another story of one of my daughters? I often tell friends that ask about my family that the two most godly members of the Cain household are Mama. Generally, Mama's always a good answer. Mama and then my third daughter, Rachel, has a huge heart for the Lord and for the Lord's people. Very sensitive. Well, one day when she was about 12 years old, I walked up to her room. Crocodile tears. Any of you daddies with daughters, you know about crocodile tears. Just crying. She said, Daddy, I don't feel like I'm a Christian. I struggle with the same besetting sins over and over again. And I wonder really whether I belong to the Lord, whether I'm His. And I said, sweetie, let me, let me tell you that you're burdened about this is a sure sign that you are the Lord's, that you are His. But let me tell you, your daddy is a pastor. I've been walking with Jesus for a lot of years, and let me assure you, there are days when I don't feel like a Christian. I don't feel like I'm a son. Our feelings always betray us. This is why I started The Bible Tells Us So. What does the Bible say? And I took her to a place like 1 John 5, 11 to 13. If anyone's struggling with the assurance of their salvation, and the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has a life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life. And here it comes, verse 13. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know absolutely for certain if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have the assurance of your salvation. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says. Um, well, let me back up just a minute. You have a note in your, in your notes. I've given you a quote and I went back and looked it up late last night. I told you it's from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It's from Martin Luther. Uh, the law scolds us. Sin screams at us. Death thunders at us. The devil roars at us. In the midst of the clamor, the Spirit of God cries in our hearts, Abba, Father. So what you see is that there, there are a number of hindrances to enjoying the assurance of our sonship. And you see here all that they are. The law can kind of scream at us and it shows us all the holes in our lives of where we're falling short and missing the mark. Um, the sin can scream at us. Death can thunder at us. And the devil, the accuser of the brethren, can, can roar at us. But in the midst of all of that, the Spirit of God's crying out, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. He's my Father. I'm His Son. Well, this whole idea of assurance 
according to J.C. Ryle, sets a child of God free from a painful kind of bondage. It enables him to feel that the great business of life is a settled business. The great debt is a paid debt. The great disease is a healed disease. And the great work is a finished work. In all other business, diseases, debts, and works are then by comparison small. In this way, assurance makes him patient in tribulation, calm during times of grief and sorrow, not afraid of bad news, in every condition content, for it gives him a great settledness of heart. Can I say one more thing about this matter? My wife and I do a lot of premarital counseling. We work with young couples here at Second. When, I, when people come to my office to start their premarital counseling, I want to tell you where I start with a young couple. I start right here. I start and begin to ask them about where they stand with Jesus Christ and do they presently enjoy the assurance of their salvation. And here's my thesis. If you're not secure in the Lord's love, in the Father's love for you, who is perfect, how can you be secure ever in the love of a fallen, sinful human being? How important it is that we come to a place of security in our relationship with the Lord. A new assurance. And lastly, you have a promised inheritance. And this is verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided... We suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So now what does it mean? What does it mean to be an heir? We have a promised inheritance. Now you guys know, and, and being a pastor, a lot of times we are called in when a family starts squabbling about the family inheritance. Uh, you know, I want that armoire. You know, I, I want that dining room table. And we can uh, get kind of at odds with people that we love over stuff. And uh, here, we, here we have something that you are the most incredibly rich man on this planet. You have an inheritance. What does it mean to be an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ? Well, the best way that I can summarize it, the sum and substance of this is that you as a follower of Jesus will one day share his glory. In fact, he's prayed for you. John 17, 24, Father, I pray for all of those who you've given me out of the world that they may be with me where I am and see and share my glory. The glory I shared with you before the world's existed. You're going to share that glory. Your destiny is heaven. Can you imagine? Matthew 25, Jesus tells you, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom that I've been preparing for you before the foundation of the world. We have an, an, an inheritance, according to 1 Peter 1, that's undefiled, imperishable, that will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. We're going to share his glory, but here is the deal. Here is the distinguishing mark of an heir. The pattern in the life of our Lord, his sufferings and the glories to follow, is the same pattern in our lives as he adopted sons. 
The condition is that we share in his sufferings. So today in Jakarta, in Indonesia, if there's any attack on a follower of Jesus, we share his sufferings because then we'll share his glory. And whatever's coming to your life, whatever is suffering that God has brought in his providential care, you can trust the Father who's perfect in his love, absolutely infinite in his wisdom, and he is sovereign in his power. And so provided we suffer with Christ in order that we may be glorified with him. Friends, this is the death nail to what is called the prosperity gospel. That God wants us to be healthy and wealthy. Sometimes hard and difficult things happen to God's people. And the degree that we share his sufferings will be the degree that we share his glory. And sufferings are not a sign that our heavenly father is displeased with you. He is using it to shape the character of Jesus in you. So, here is a creed that I want us to adopt based on Romans 8, 12 to 17. Who am I? Tell me, who are you? (laughs) I am a son of the living God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. And every day is one day nearer. My savior is my brother, my elder brother, and every other Christian is my brother too. So today I want to encourage you to embrace and live in light of your new identity in Christ as a son of God. I've got a sheet up here of all the attributes of a son. The difference between living as a spiritual orphan and as a son. And if you're interested I just encourage you to grab that as just a little tool to sort of flesh out Romans 8, 12 to 17. Let me pray for us. Abba, Father, we come to you. We thank you that we can come into your throne room and approach you boldly and confidently that you have poured your love into our hearts. And, oh, Father, I pray that you would ravish us today with your beauty, that you would pour your love afresh into our hearts And, Lord, that we would look to no one else or anything else to get our sense of identity, but that Jesus Christ, our elder brother, would be enough for us and that we would live in light of your love and that we would live today as the blood-bought sons of the living God. We give you thanks and praise. Fill us now with your spirit and empower us to live as your sons. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.